Hi, and welcome to PH Drinking, the podcast where I interview graduate students from a variety of fields all about their research. I'm your host, Sadie Witkowski, and with me today is a rising third-year graduate student in the history department at Rutgers, New Brunswick. Please welcome Hannah Gro- <laughs> Groach, Begley, did I nail it? You did. It's great. Yeah. Perfect. <laughs> welcome. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It's great to be here. Um, so what's your, your random weird fact for us today? Oh, yeah. So I was, uh, I, I do First World War history mostly. And so I was looking for a fun World War One fact for you. And what I found was that apparently tanks in World War One were gendered. So you had male tanks and female tanks, which I just find hilarious. Like it's just they just, like, however, it felt lower. <laughs> so um, male tanks had cannons on them, and female tanks just had machine guns. Oh. And I think by the end of the war, they decided to make all tanks have both, so they were no longer gendered. Um, but they would literally call female tanks like mothers. Um, it was just. Just one of those perfect examples about how literally everything has gender somehow wrapped up in it. That's which I thought so was weird. Wild, yeah. That is wild. I never knew that. Um, well, that's a perfect, yeah, that's a perfect little factor to start off with. But I should also ask you what you're drinking today. Ah, yes, I am drinking a white wine blend because it is hot outside and I'm a grad student and that's what I can afford. <laughs> oh, I feel that. <laughs> so, um. It's lovely. <laughs> I know. I was like, maybe we should start making sangria. That way I can have a big pitcher in my fridge whenever I'm like, I need to read 20 papers. Why don't I just pour myself yep. a glass? <laughs> it's a good uh, way to do it. Yeah. Well, I'm having the Beach Blonde, which is a golden lager from Crystal Lake Brewing. So I'll go ahead and crack this. Get some ASMR going on here. Um, Well, cheers. Cheers from across America. I know. You're in D.C.? Yes, Washington, D.C. Yeah, Rutgers is in New Jersey, but I've hit the point in my degree where I don't have to live there full time. And my partner's in D.C., so I'm hanging out here, and I love it in this city. So happy to represent. I actually, fun fact, I lived in D.C. last summer. Um, I did the AAAS Mass Media Fellowship, and I got oh, placed cool. in D.C., and I got to live with my college roommate in D.C., and then see, like, Kelsey, our mutual friend, who's also in D.C., and I was like, woohoo! Wow, amazing. It's a great town. Yeah. Pretty much everyone fun. seems to live in D.C. at some point in their life, and <laughs> I highly recommend it. Yeah. Yeah, but that's so you're you're getting to the point where now you don't have to be on campus just because you're like not taking classes anymore or anything. Yeah, I'm winding down the coursework. Um, I have one more class this fall, but then it's just research and writing the dissertation. So we're getting there. Yeah, so you're in a history department, which means your research is very different from a lot of people that I speak to. I mostly talk with science folks who are either staring at a computer or like <laughs> in a wet lab. So what sure. does research look like for you? Um, so yeah, it's usually not wet. Um, hopefully, (laughs) hopefully not wet. Um, so usually what I do is I travel the world going to different archives where they've saved documents, um, from my time period is mostly the first world war, though I also do sort of Victorian Britain, 19th century, and then into the 20th century. 
Um, and I look at everything from diaries to government memos to building plans. Um, I'm looking into this uh, insane asylum for an upcoming project. And I was looking at like the architect's notes at one point, which was kind of cool. Um, really just anything I can find that uh, libraries or archives have saved. Um, and then I'm really lucky because a lot of stuff has also been digitized. So some of the research I can do from DC, um, you know, I just have to have access to databases and that sort of thing. Um, and that's something that uh, British history in particular has really prioritized is the digitization, which I think is amazing. It makes things much more accessible um, and it makes it much easier to search through huge quantities of information. So a lot of the work I do is also with newspapers because basically every British newspaper from the beginning of newspapers has been digitized at this point. So Dang. I can, it's amazing. So I can go on and I can say, all right, I want to see every single time a newspaper article mentioned this person or this event, or I want to see all of the ads for this product or whatever it is I can think of. Um, and that produces some really fun results. So can you basically like command F search all these newspapers rather than having to go through by hand and like go through like microfilm or whatever it is? <laughs> like yeah, no, it's um, my advisor is kind of mad at me because he's like, you know, I used to have to go through and page by page of these newspapers and you could just like pull up, you know, for the first 50 results like a Google search, um, which is pretty amazing. I mean, it's still all of this kind of digital humanities stuff is obviously a work in progress and it takes a lot of really dedicated volunteers. And so sometimes the transcriptions aren't perfect or whatever. You know, I do still have to do a lot of digging. Um, but it's an amazing resource. I'm really lucky in that way. Yeah. And you're not having to dig as much through like terribly like ye old English in cursive that it's like, let me just transcribe this for six hours and then I'll read it and actually figure out what it says. Right, right. And this is also an advantage I have of doing modern history that uh, my colleagues in the department who do history anytime before sort of the mid 19th century, it's all a lot of bad cursive handwriting and pencil on faded paper. And by my time period, a lot of things have been typed. Um, a lot of things have been um, saved there. You know, the preservation is just better for things that are more recent. Um, so I definitely have a pretty sweet gig when it comes to research. Yeah, no, that's definitely super lucky. Um, so you're you said, like, I guess I should go back because, like, I want to know about the methods. But also, so you study, like, mostly World War One era and then a little bit of, like, before that Victorian era. And, like, is there a specific, like, area within the history department? Because that's, you know, world history is very big and very long. <laughs> yes. Um, so I am uh, – it's kind of like a pyramid. You have to think of it. So uh, first and foremost, I do modern European history. So I'm trained to be an expert in sort of – all of European history from the French Revolution to today. Um, and I can teach courses on subjects within that. Um, more specifically within that, my own research focuses on British history. Um, specifically, I'm interested in Britain, uh, the British Empire, and issues of disability. And then um, sort of further narrowed, I am a historian of gender, and I'm specifically interested in 
um, the ways in which masculinity and femininity change over time, what their definitions are. Um, and so sort of the combination of all of that is how I get to a dissertation topic. Um, but those are the different fields in which I operate and I'm trained. Yeah, no, that's, I mean, like, those are so many different interesting topics. Just thinking, like, even just starting with, like, you know, gender and how masculinity and femininity are defined. I'm thinking of, like, isn't the Victorian age when children all wore, like, the same lacy dresses until you hit a certain age? And then they're like, all right, boys get pants, girls get dressed. Like, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And some of that stuff, you know, you dig into it and you're like, oh, some of this was just convenience, right? Like, it's just easier to have one set of children's clothes yeah right? other than do what we do and be like oh it has to be blue um <laughs> but but yeah I I find this really fascinating it's part of what drew me to the first world war in particular because what I think is really fascinating I'm not a military historian I, I can't tell you about battles um whenever I tell someone I do world war one history they're always you know asking about like tactics at the Somme and I I can't I the Somme seems bad that's, that's <laughs> my take. opinion yeah. of of what happened there um what I'm more interested in is the lives of everyday people who experienced the war and the ways in which the war provided this really wild exceptional moment of you know great violence great trauma um and also interestingly great opportunity and that it was this moment where everything kind of exploded and people got to play around with what it meant to be a man or what it meant to be a woman. Um, and, and I find that really exciting. And some of those things that, that changed during the war didn't last. Um, and sort of after the war ended, things went back to normal and other things did change. Um, and so I just find it this really fascinating moment in history because it is really the first total war it's the first time that like the whole world is genuinely involved in one major conflict um and the ramifications of that for everyday life are immense right because it's going to echo out even to countries that aren't fighting in the war but that are colonies of countries fighting in the war and so like they're getting food and equipment diverted or just like yeah it's bonkers. Yeah. Well, and even, I mean, more that, that a lot of those countries that are colonies are also fighting. I mean, this is something that it took a long time for scholars to admit and write about. But, um, you know, millions of the people who die in World War One are Indian soldiers fighting for Britain. Um, at one point, Brazil gets involved in the fight. Japan is involved. Like, it literally is a world war in a way I think that much of the focus on sort of the European side of the conflict sometimes ignores or forgets about. Um, and so that's been really fun. And, and you know, the work that I do, I am interested in Britain and British women, but I'm also looking at Ottoman women who are in British colonies who are, um, you know, getting thrown in prisoner of war camps during the war and what is their experience. Um, that, you know, there's all sorts of cross-cultural exchange that happens during the war that um, has, you know, huge real impacts on people's lives. Yeah, that's so interesting. I'm going to be honest. I don't know very much about World War One besides, like, that's when you have, like, the Red Baron and trench warfare. <laughs> and that's, like, yes. the extent of my knowledge. That's fine. I mean, I think that's for a lot of people. Um, for me, that was the case. Like, I didn't know anything about World War One until my junior year of college that – 
Um, you know, in high school, we skipped it. <laughs> we went yeah. straight to World War II. I think for most people, that's the case. Um, now that I'm teaching undergrads, most of them have never learned about it before. Um, and I really only learned about it because I had a professor who was passionate and who taught a seminar on it. Um, and I took that class and it, you know, it changed my life. I loved it. It was fascinating. And I decided that it was something I wanted to pursue. Um, but part of what I think is also fun about it is that it is kind of this crazy moment in history that because World War II is, you know, so much more violent in ways that World War One isn't, though World War One is obviously extremely violent, um, we kind of forget about how important World War One was at its moment, um, the Great War, before it became the first one. Right. Uh, and And it's just a really fun moment to look at a rupture and change, um, which are often the kinds of things that historians are interested in. Right. Where, where did things start to shift and led to like, you know, modern trends you see today or modernized like sensitivities or. Sure. Yeah. Or I, where did things not change, but we, we expect change. Right. And that's the other thing I'm interested in is I think we sort of look at this moment where we go, Oh my God, it was so violent and it was so much and everything changed so much. So surely these other things must have changed as well. And it's also just as interesting to me to see when were things actually just chugging along, keeping on keeping on, and and why does that happen? Um, That those are the kind of questions I like to ask. So like what kinds of things for women in the British Empire switched back to the status quo after the Great War that like people thought were going to stick around, but then they like, were there liberties that were lost? Were there styles of dress that were lost? Like what, what, you know, swung back to what we quote unquote think is like before? Yeah. um, I mean, I think the the primary example are um, women in the workforce. So during the war, um, primarily because a lot of men are being shipped overseas to fight in battles um, and because a lot of new jobs are being invented, um, like munitions jobs to help build ammunition and that sort of thing, um, that women are entering the workforce during the war in unprecedented numbers. Um, I don't want to overstate that, that there's been some historical work that says, well, actually women were in the workforce in the Victorian age too, and we need to not pretend that this was entirely brand new as I was saying before right um, women had had been you know working in in shops for a long time they had been working um, as domestic servants that sort of thing um, but they were in certain roles they hadn't been in before you saw women policemen you saw women factory girls um, a lot of the research that I did was on uh, women who were actually at the front who were working as ambulance drivers. Um, so, you know, we often hear about the nurses who are sent to the war. Um, but there were also women working the far greater manual job of ambulance driving who would have to go into the trenches, into no man's land to pick up soldiers. Um so yeah, that and even was wasn't that change. like before um, power steering? So wasn't that like manual steering a car? Oh, yeah. Really, Ooh. really terrible. I mean, manual cranking the engine. Uh, women, I mean, would write in their diaries about how they would, you know, break their arms trying to crank the engines of these ambulances. Um, getting stuck in the mud, getting stuck in the snow. Oh, it was terrible. Um, and a lot of those jobs were lost once the war was over. That there was this sort of moment when people said, all right, the war is done. Um, men need to be able to come back to those jobs. 
Um, and that caused a lot of problems for a number of levels. I mean, first of all, it was horrible for women who were forced out of work who wanted to work. Um, but it was also hard for families where a man came home and he was disabled and he was injured and he actually could no longer take over the job that he had left behind. Um, and you have this weird moment in, in history, and this isn't just in Britain, this is really across Europe, um, where there's this desire for things to go back to the way they were and for men to refill those, those jobs and for women to go back to being housewives on a desire that many people hold. Um, and they actually can't. Right. And so this is part of the history of the creation of the welfare state. Yep. Um, this is a, a big reason why you do eventually have more and more female workforce participation, uh, because there gradually becomes this understanding that, you know, this has got to change. Um, and so that's, I think, an example, the cl- sort of classic example of things kind of going back to the way they were before, Um, but also the ways in which war can fundamentally change society in ways that you can't repair. Yeah, no, that sounds very, you know, like, um, I think we get later echoes of that same experience in World War II, right, where we have, like, because it was this global effort, you have ideas like Rosie the Riveter, but like women taking more manual jobs that then post the war, like, yeah, a lot of them went back to being like, you know, a domestic lifestyle of what we see in the 1950s, but not all of them. And it did kind of change the way that like the GI Bill was written. So it's like, yeah, it's absolutely. like, that's what I know more about is World War II. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure. But it is similar. And and I think you also see this similar um, and desire to shift what what is a good citizen and what is a good female citizen and what is a good male citizen. So in a time of war, a good citizen is someone who contributes to the war effort, right? So that might be someone like Rosie the Riveter who's going to do her bit by going to a job she didn't previously have is is the idea, right? Is part of the propaganda. Right. Um, And then a good citizen in a time of peace, people are going to have conflicting views on what that looks like. And that's where you start to get these... Um, these real shifts in both how society conceives of women and women's work more broadly, um, but also in how the women conceive of it themselves, right? Like if you've just spent the last four years of your life being told that to be a good citizen of Britain, you need to do this job. Well, now you're going to turn around and go, okay, well, I want the vote, right? Because I did that job. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I want welfare benefits for my husband. And I, you know, and I've, seen that you value this of me, but only at a certain time in history. And so that's where you also get a lot of really fascinating shifts in um, in women's movements and in, in feminism of what are we fighting for precisely. And that changes whether or not it's wartime or peacetime. Um, and that's part of what I think is just so fascinating about that whole period about, you know, sort of the end of the 19th century through to the 50s, really, um, is there's just so much change that happens in that 50 year period. Yeah, very rapidly. Just thinking like if that was, you know, if you were born in 1900 and then lived through 1950, you saw both world wars at like pretty pivotal ages for yourself. And also just yeah. like the amount of social stress and change, like that's, that must be insane. Yeah. And I mean, to be fair, a lot of people didn't live that long to see those changes. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people died. Um, World War One is also, I think, this really um, horrible moment just 
both because of the violence of the war itself, but also because um, the war helped spread an influenza pandemic, um, the pandemic w- which kills millions. Um, and so you, when you look at sort of death tolls of the war, they actually undersell just how much death and destruction was happening um, because the flu killed just such a huge proportion of Europe at the same time and was really aided in its spread because of the war. Um, Is that the Spanish flu? uh, Yeah, basically. It has a lot of names. But yeah, um, and and it's just this like really interesting moment where actually a lot of people don't live and life expectancies are super short um, among men and women. Right. And this is, again, part of the research that I do is to say this wasn't just men. That for decades, historians were really focused on soldiers, uh, specifically white soldiers, specifically on the Western Front. Um, and luckily, and, and I'm so grateful for this, in the past couple decades, that shifted. And so now we're getting more and more scholarship on other fronts, right? The Eastern Front, um, there's fronts with, I mean, there's huge wars with the Ottoman Empire, um, that ultimately, you know, the Ottoman Empire dissolves. Right. Uh, you have fighting in Africa. Like I said, you have fighting in, in the Atlantic and the Pacific Oceans. Um, and so we're getting more history on that. And we're also getting more history on women, um, both women who are sort of at the what's called the home front. Uh, so women at home who are either working or being um, mothers or just um, living in places like London, um, who are experiencing air raids, right? Like they're actually getting shot at from the sky. They're not safe at home, that this is itself a kind of front. Um, And also women who, as I said before, are literally in the trenches, who are in no man's land, who are um, very much fighting. I mean, in Britain, you have this sort of core of ambulance drivers um, who I find really fascinating. Um, but you also have in Russia, you have a battalion of female soldiers who fight during World War I. Wow. Um, yeah, they're, they're wild. They're called the Battalion of Death. I highly recommend <laughs> uh, Googling them. They're pretty great. Um, that you have um, women in Germany become super politically active during the war, um, in part because of massive food shortages that take place. Um, and so they lead these wild protests to sort of, you know, tell the German government that this is not acceptable. Um, so you really have a lot of great scholarship that's finally coming out that really, I mean, finally, since the 90s, I would say, is when this really started, um, that is sort of changing our narrative of this war and our narrative of who died because of it, who was wounded because of it, um, physically and mentally. And that's the other side of things that I'm really interested in is the the mental health uh, and the, the mental toll that war takes on individuals. Yeah, so it's not just like you had your leg blown off, but like how do you recuperate from such an extreme situation and, and like, yeah, I can't even imagine the mental toll that something like that could cause. And like the difficulty of like, now just go back, like nothing ever happened. Right. Right. Because again, this is before, you know, we've come up with a name for something like PTSD. Right. So a lot of doctors are doing their best um, and we shouldn't discount that. Uh, But they also don't really know what they're dealing with at this point. They've never seen um, 
this kind of mental breakdown on such a wide scale, um, you know, both among soldiers and among civilians. And they are trying very quickly to adapt to that. They're constantly coming out with new diagnoses. Um, I think everyone knows the term shell shock, uh, which is a diagnosis that comes out early in the war. And then doctors realize that you don't have to be next to an exploding shell to experience those symptoms. But it's a clever name. And so it's stuck. Um, but you know, you have a lot of these diagnoses that come out, um, for soldiers and civilians. And so, you know, the, the work that I did previously is really looking at these women who were at the front and, um, and the ways in which sometimes they were kind of denied access to healthcare, um, because there was this assumption that only men could get shell shock. Um, and, and, you know, women were just hysteric. Um, right, of course, because it's their uterus that's moving around. Right, it's definitely exactly. not because of the same mental traumas. No, no. <laughs> but uh, but now the research that I'm, I'm starting to do more on um, looks at how actually um, a lot of doctors recognize that the war did affect women in new ways, that you couldn't sort of fall back on this Victorian conception of hysteria. Um, and you had to come up with new types of diagnoses. And you have really fascinating debates among doctors and the public about, you know, what is mental illness and, and how does it manifest and um, how do we sympathize or help or protect, you know, what, what, what are we supposed to do with this? We don't, you know, you can tell reading the documents that a lot of times they're just trying their best, um, but they're not sure what to do. And so um, I found that really fun to, to read into and to sort of figure out how, how we get to a place where today where we're still having a lot of those similar debates. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of discrimination against mental illness. There's a lot of um, horrible policy out there. And there are also people who are who are doing a lot of good. Um, and so part of what I also find fascinating about this moment is I think it's where a lot of those debates start or, or really accelerate um, and, and bring us to today. Would you say that like some of the date, but the debate was also like whether the same disorder, like if it looks differently across genders? Because I'm kind of thinking about like we see things like PTSD tend to look different um, based on gender, more based on like the way that we raise children to expect gender to work than like necessarily any brain differences. But like, sure. did they ever look into that kind of stuff as well? I'm guessing. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the time they would just call them different things, right? They wouldn't say, okay, here's shell shock in a man and shell shock in a woman, and how does this manifest differently? They would just say, oh, what's happening are two different disorders, right? So gotcha. you'd, have, you'd have maybe war neurosis or war neurasthenia, and then you'd have civilian neurosis, or civilian neurasthenia. Like, these are considered two different things. Um, or you'd have the name get more specific. Like, um, a couple of the women I'm looking at right now um, are diagnosed with what's called air raid shock because they're living in London and they're experiencing the air raids where Zeppelins are dropping bombs on London um, and they're, you know, having difficulties because of that. And so doctors come up with this new term. Um, right. And so they're doing a little bit less of that cross-gender comparison, which, you know, would be fascinating. Though there is some of that. Um, and there, it's more just giving it new names. This also happens across race. So um, a colleague of mine, Hillary Buxton, has done amazing research on this where she looks at 
um, non-white soldiers, so uh, predominantly Indian soldiers who are fighting for the British. Um, and they're also not diagnosed with the same things that the white soldiers are diagnosed with, and that there's this um, very, it's very difficult for them to have mental health recognized or mental illness recognized, um, and that there's this, you know, deep bias in the mental health profession um, that's happening at the time. And so, yeah, it's it's a really complicated, messy time for the doctors, and it's also messy for me when I'm going through <laughs> the archives. Uh, but it's fascinating uh, because, yeah, it really shows us, I think, a lot of that deep history of how we think about gender, how we think about service and sacrifice and the toll that that takes um, and the assumptions that undergird medical thought and practice um, that can go into the very naming of a diagnosis, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's some like very intensely interesting, but probably really difficult, you know, topics to research. I was kind of wondering, like, how did you get interested in this period of time? What made you want to go to grad school and get a a history degree um, looking into this era? Sure. Um, Yeah. So I... As I said, I hadn't really known anything about World War One until I took this class uh, my junior year of college, and um, I really loved it. I found it fascinating for for every reason that we've talked about. Um, in particular, I read this novel called Not So Quiet, which was a response to All Quiet on the Western Front, which I think everyone has mostly heard of. Um, and Not So Quiet is told from women's experience, women who are at the front who were ambulance drivers. Um, And it's just a beautiful novel. And I read it for this class and I thought, oh, this is this is fascinating. Why do none of the, you know, nonfiction books talk about these women? Um, Like, why? Why do we have to read a novel? It's a great novel. But like, this is a history class. Why? (laughs) You know, why? Why aren't why aren't we reading a historian? Um, And it turned out that at the time, it was because very few people had written about those women. Um, In fact, many historians had written, even, you know, great historians who I deeply respect will say things like, oh, there were no women on the Western Front, or there were never any women in the trenches. And that's just wrong. Um, But I, you know, I think it's just because they don't know and because they're citing the books before them that said that same thing and that there's this like long... Right. Uh, history to this assumption that there were no women, even though their archives are full of evidence that there were. Um, and so what I actually did in undergrad was I was able to do some archival research. I was able to go to London um, and study these women, um, specifically these ambulance drivers. And that was just such a fun experience. Um, and so I, you know, I left college. I joined the workforce. I did my my duty outside of academia. Um, but I kept sort of thinking about that work and thinking about that research. And I was still so drawn to the similar questions. And, and I loved the the research process. And so I decided to, to take a gamble and apply to graduate school after, after a few years. Um, and luckily, by the time I started graduate school, more of that work had started to be published. And it wasn't just completely missing. Um, And so I've been able to sort of go in other directions as well. And so now I'm really looking at women and violence more broadly um, within the context of the war. So, you know, I mentioned earlier women who are kept in concentration camps during the war. Um, I'm interested in women who are kept in insane asylums during the war, Um, women who are 
convicted of murder during the war. Um, so women who are surrounded by violence, experiencing violence, and also using violence as a tool, um, and the ways in which that's conceptualized by their contemporaries and sort of dealt with. Um, and so it's been a blast. I mean, I really think about graduate school as this, this is sort of my like fun, selfish years where I get to just do research that I find interesting. Um, and, and I'm really grateful. Yeah, you just you're like, oh, this this like fascinates me. I'm just gonna go on a deep dive and read all the things I can find about it. Yeah, that's, and that's my, my job. job, right? It's <laughs> it's so cool. <laughs> this is my job. Having had other jobs, which were great, I loved my other jobs, but I didn't get to just be like, I'm gonna spend the afternoon reading this book. Like, it's not. <laughs> That's not how desk jobs work usually. No, not even a little bit. I man, I wish my grad school experience was like, I'm gonna read this book. It seems cool because the science articles I read, some are great, but some are just like, could someone just you know like hit me in the head with a hammer yeah. so I don't have to read this anymore? I mean, believe me, we have plenty of those too. I, I should not should not discount all of the very many boring history papers out there, but um, I'm yeah. lucky. We, we've, got a, we've got a lot of good ones, and I'm very, very grateful for that. So do you feel like your area, like, in general is growing now that you said, like, there's more and more recognition of kind of women's experience during this war? Like, are there conferences you can go to where it's just you and your colleagues who really study this kind of niche area? Yeah, um, there is. There's actually – there's a lot of people who do this um, – I haven't been to a conference specifically on sort of women in World War One, but um, they do exist. Uh, but there's also just a lot of really exciting discussion happening in history right now about crossing the boundaries within our discipline. Um, so, you know, how do I make sure my history is relevant to people who are not British historians or are not historians of World War One or not historians of women, right? Like making sure that we're all actually having a conversation with one another and building off of each other and learning from each other um, rather than siloing ourselves, um, which I think is fabulous. And I think, um, you know, every time I'm able to, to have a conversation with another historian who does work that, you know, on paper would sound like it has absolutely no relevance to what I do, um, but we actually sit down and we talk about it and we realize that, you know, we, we're sharing methodologies or maybe we're even sharing archives we're sharing, um, ideas, concepts, analytical frames. That's really exciting for me. So I've actually really tried to, to branch out a little bit and it's fun in my grad program. I'm the only person who does world war one, as far as I know. I mean, there's some people who are a little bit further along, but the people who I was in classes with, um, they didn't know anything about World War One, and that's fine, right? And I, I would teach them what I knew, and they would teach me what they knew, and, um, and I think we all become better historians because of that. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, it sounds like you're pretty embedded in your your local academic you know, cohort. Are you planning to stay in academia once you finish? I know that like rising third year, you've got plenty of time to figure that yes. out. Yes. Yes. So much time. <laughs> uh, it will never end. No, um, I I would love to. I, I would love to be able to teach. Um, I really, really love teaching. That's the other thing I've learned with graduate school is that I love doing the research, um, but I actually genuinely love teaching, which not everyone does. Um and so if I could, I would, uh, there aren't a lot of jobs. So, you know, I yeah. think all of us have to be realistic about that. Um, I think everyone in the humanities, but also in academia broadly, um, has to be realistic about that and understand what that means. Um, 
So, you know, I'll, I'll give it a shot. And, and if it doesn't work, I'm lucky because I have a community, I have a network, I have previous work experience. Um, I have things I can do as plan B's that'll also make me happy. Um, but I would definitely love to be able to stick around if I can. Yeah, no, absolutely. And especially like being passionate about teaching helps so much because we all have had those really bad professors where we're like, I would have liked this topic if not for you or vice versa, where you just have someone who's amazing. You're like, never knew I could care about this, but apparently I do deeply. (laughs) Right, right. Absolutely. And, you know, part of what I love about Rutgers is that, um, you know, because it's a state school, you get students who really across the board, right? You get students who are really into it. You get students who are really not. um, But regardless, it's so much fun. And, you know, everyone's in that room because they want to be in that room. And I just, I adore it. So yeah, we'll see. Who knows what the future holds. First, I have to, you know, pass my exams and write a dissertation. So yeah, no big deal. (laughs) (laughs) I have some time. Like I've got a few more milestones first, but yeah, Yeah. totally. (laughs) Yeah. Someday. Um, Well, is there anything I didn't get to ask you about that you wanted to chat about? Um, I don't know. I think we've we've covered a lot of the a lot of the big stuff. I, I, as you can tell, my my research interests are kind of all over the map, but um, I'm excited that I'm starting to find the threads that'll tie them all together. And so uh, I guess stay tuned. Is yeah. what I would say. No, absolutely. Now I'm gonna check out the the Russian battalion you mentioned because that's like fascinating. I had never heard of that. Yeah, the Battalion of Death. They're really cool. They didn't fight in a ton of battles, but they did it in a couple of battles. And it's a really fascinating story. Highly recommend. Cool. Um, yeah, well, in that case, I'll just say thanks to everyone for listening to this episode. And if you like the show, please tell your friends about the podcast and leave a review on Apple Podcasts. Uh, your review helps me reach a larger audience and get more interesting guests on the show. In addition, I have a Patreon account where you can become a patron of the podcast. That helps support production costs. Friend of the show, Tyler Dammy, has been editing this show for free, but your patronage would go a long way to help making this podcast a sustainable project. And if you want to hear what I'm up to, you can follow me on Twitter at phdrinking, or I have a personal account, which is at Sadie Witt. And then, Hannah, how do you want listeners to be able to find out more about you and your work? So they can follow me on Twitter. Uh, my Twitter account is at Grouchy Bagels. Um, pretty memorable, I've heard. Uh, <laughs> and um, that's probably the best place. Um, but people should feel free to reach out. I'm always eager, as I think I've made clear, to talk about World War One and women <laughs> and history in general. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. And as always, I'll make sure to uh, include some links about your area of research as well as your um, podcast or your (laughs) Twitter handle so that people can find you more easily. Great. Thanks. Uh, Well, thanks again for joining me on the show. This has been super fascinating. Thank you for having me. Yeah. And to all you listeners out there, cheers. Cheers.